0: I want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel, your host. I've got Jonas with me today. How's it going, Jonas? Good,
1: Roger. Good to be here again on your uh, popular podcast.
0: Yeah, we're happy to have you back. We always seem to have good shows, and I think, you know, this, this is going to be a good show for you, partly because you wrote that book, The No Budget Life, and we're going to talk about some budgeting things today. Uh, that I think are relevant to people, and hopefully you can provide some good insight, insight into that. I know we were just talking about large ticket items. We're going to talk about that on the radio show tonight. How do those kind of fit into your budget?
1: Right. Yeah, the big ticket items, the uh, um, the way that they've uh, increased in uh, in price, and uh, you, you're talking about double digit increases in new car purchases. And uh, even more than that with homes right here in the Midwest, you have Indiana, Ohio. Um, you have, uh, if you're looking at uh, even Wisconsin, uh, double-digit increases. If these continue, then the price of uh, homes uh, will double in seven, 7 to 10 years, and that, that that's kind of scary.
0: I think it's definitely scary for people who are barrier to entry, trying to get into the housing market. You know, I I just look at my neighborhood and what there's a house in my neighborhood that literally has went up double since it was built in 2016 and just sold in a few days. So, you know, last last year, we heard all this talk about how the housing market was going to crash. We're going to have a recession. And guess what? None of it's come true. I mean, housing's still tough. There's very little inventory. and as you look at what housing's doing, just the cost to house a family, doing to their everyday budgets, wreaking havoc on families who are trying to get into the market. I mean, it's really hard to buy a house. You used to be able to get a good starter home for 125 in our area, 125, 150 thousand. Those don't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, it's really scary when you have younger kids. Just to think about the the cost of uh, them being on their own and. Uh, One of the things the financial media has been experts about the last two years is being wrong about recessions.
0: You know, I was still waiting.
1: Yeah, I was so nervous about, you know, they had me going about a potential recession. I put on a workshop for my customers at uh, Granite City and went over. I mean, that was two years ago already, and we haven't had a recession. So, um, yeah, it's kind of scary some of these big ticket items, how they're going up, especially. For the future generations to try to, like you said, get started?
0: Well, a couple weeks ago, we actually did a show where we talked about how a woman paid off $300,000 in debt in just a couple of years. And paying off debt is becoming even more difficult for people for a couple of different reasons. One, as the housing percentage of your budget increases, that's one. You know, all of a sudden, if your, your cost of housing went up 20, 30, 40%, well, that eats into your budget, makes it harder to pay off debt. But then consumers are also getting hit with this other double whammy, and that's that interest rates are significantly higher than they were. I mean, you think about a person who was buying a $300,000 home three years ago where interest rates were going to cost them 1600 bucks a month. Now it's 2100 And that doesn't include the cost of the increase on the value of the home because no home that was 300, three years ago is 300 now. It's 450 or 500. So one of the things we thought we'd talk about in today's show is how do we actually like simplify the budget, make things easier so we can kind of work out of some of the debts that, that we may have had. And you know, Jonas, I know when you wrote the book, you kind of try to eliminate the word budget. You called it the no budget lifestyle. Maybe tell me a little bit about your philosophy with that book. Um, in what that no budget lifestyle actually means, because people think of that. I think when people hear that, it's this negative connotation like irresponsibility. It's not what it is. I'll let you explain what it is, but it's still a budget, just a different way to approach it. And, you know, me personally, I've had the philosophy for a long time that budgets are broken. And you should know where your money's going and give responsibilities. But if you look at most budgeting worksheets or websites, What's the first line item? How much is your mortgage. mortgage? Car payment. It's all these other people, and the end, guess what the last line item is? Savings. Pay yourself. It's exactly backwards, but tell us a little bit about your No Budget Lifestyle book, what the motivation for for maybe doing that book was, Jonas.
1: Yeah, I always thought that the word budget had a negative connotation, and it, it kind of discouraged people because they're setting themselves up for failure kind of like a diet. Um, you'd always go over your budget and you'd feel bad about that. And the last thing that uh, I've learned about, you know, investing people's money the last 30 years is I don't want them to feel bad about money. I want them to actually feel good about money. And uh, so I started to call it, uh, I use the term spending plan um, instead of a budget. It's kind of like being on a diet, Roger, where it's like uh, instead of telling uh you're out to eat instead of telling people and friends you're out to eat with that you're on a diet, just say that you're eating smaller portions or you're avoiding sugar. And instead of telling people you're on keto, just say, I'm trying to stay away from sugar. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that it, it almost creates encouragement instead of discouragement. And, uh, I think the psychology, uh, behind it, uh, if you call it a spending plan instead of a budget, it's a spending plan geared around your household's lifestyle investments. And I just call a lifestyle investment, uh, what you want to feel good about spending money in in that period um, of your uh, of your life uh, with with your family. And uh, for the Everett family, we like to take these little small staycations over the weekends. And uh, um, the last thing that you want to do, if if it's traveling, if traveling is your lifestyle investment, the last thing you want to do is go to Disney or go, go on a vacation and have to worry about spending money. I mean, you saw this firsthand. We call this the, uh, it's supposed to be the most magical place on earth. And for some, for some <laughs> so couples, it was the most toxic place on earth because they didn't have a spending plan, right? They, they went into it without a spending plan.
0: Um, I feel bad for people that go to Disney for the first time and don't know what they're getting into because the cost of that trip is very expensive just to get there and to sign up to go to the parks.
1: And we love Disney, by I the way. I love it, so, I'm going uh, back. They have black helicopters and uh, and Mickey has surveillance uh, everywhere. But, uh, but
0: what I'd tell people if you haven't been there, whatever you spent to fly there, get your lodging and go get your park passes, that's how much you're going to spend once you're there, you're there too. A lot of people think just getting there's the cost. You know, it's pretty tough to eat for under 200 bucks at the Disney resorts. Right, right. I it, mean, yeah, you got to exactly. be resourceful and you can take food in. So you just, people need to think about it. But you're right. Like when you go there, it's supposed to be the trip of a lifetime. And for a lot of people. It's It's not the the trip, it's the opposite, because they didn't know what they were getting into.
1: And I think just having a spending plan, not only Disney, I mean, look at at the lottery winners um, in America, how a third of lotto winners are bankrupt. How is that possible? How can that possibly happen? It's the lack of a spending plan. And uh, uh, about 10 years ago, or about 13 years ago now, the lotto went through Cedar Rapids here, and I was fortunate enough to work with a couple of the lottery winners, Well, out of the 20 lottery winners um, uh, from a company in Cedar Rapids, there's one that is broke. And he's the youngest one. And he's the one that didn't have a spending plan because I tried to counsel him on spending plan and he, uh, on having a spending plan. And he had no, he had no part of it. He wanted a Lexus hybrid. You know, he wanted to get married right away. He wanted a new house right away. There was no spending plan. And lo and behold, he's bankrupt.
0: And you know, People that hear stories about that think that that person just blew their money on purpose and it doesn't happen on purpose. No, it doesn't. It, it, it's the silent stuff nobody thinks about. They go spend a million and a half bucks in a house or a million bucks in a house. They forgot about the $25,000 a year in property tax and the $5,000 a year to insure it. Like that all adds up. Um, you, so you... you People wonder, well, okay, you win the $100 million lottery. How could you blow it all? Well, you go buy a $10 million house in Florida that cost $100,000 a year to insure, cost you $12,000 a month in taxes. you do enough of that stuff, it's all gone. Right. I've watched, uh, I don't know if you know who Ben Mala is. You probably don't, but he's a real estate investor. He's all over YouTube. He's just really entertaining. He was talking about how much it costs to upkeep his $10 million mansion. It was like $110,000 a month. <laughs> but people yeah. don't think about right. all of those other costs when they put together a spending plan or lack thereof. They think they won the lottery you can do whatever we want. We're rich. Well, you will be for a short period of time if you don't figure out how to treat, treat the money. But I think the key takeaway about your book, Jonas, is that having a budget, or a spending plan. It's not a one size fits all. And different types of people are going to be attracted to different methods of doing this. Some people want to like nail down their their budget to the penny. Some people just want to have broad categories they put it into. That that's kind of how I am. I allocate x amount to my house, x amount to savings, x like I don't want to say I'm only allowed to spend $27 at Starbucks. That's not how I want to live like Here's my out-to-eat grocery and food money. Let's figure out how to make that work for the month. Um, But if you're struggling to figure out how to do the budget, the best thing you can do is just try a different type. You know, people don't want to do a budget. Most budgets don't work. Let's just be completely honest about it. But if one method isn't working, try a different method. Like you said, Jonas, the most important thing that you do is have some type of of a spending plan or spending strategy doesn't really matter how it works or what you call it. Just have a plan of where your money's going to go. Absolutely,
1: having any spending plan is better than having no spending plan at all. And uh, you know, one thing that I've learned is people forget, and the the financial institutions love the fact that people forget. Right? That's why they they're they're actually advertising. Restaurants advertise visa mastercard they want you to pay with your credit card they know that you pay more they know that you order dessert Um, even gas stations you know the second biggest uh, expense that gas stations have is credit card transaction fees and they're okay with that because people actually will forget how much there uh, is coming out of their account so i think uh, having a uh, spending uh, plan and I, I like this article about this lady that uh, chopped away at three hundred thousand of debt over three years. She said uh, that uh, you know having a spending plan instead of a, a budget. It sometimes people forget it doesn't always work out right. If she went over her spending plan, or uh, she bought something more expensive, she felt less less guilty um, having a spending plan that she went overboard on. Than having a budget that she couldn't keep under. So I think it's back to the, um, instead of being on a diet, you're eating smaller portions and you're just telling yourself something to encourage yourself instead of discourage
0: yourself. So when you were talking about that, I, I had an off subject thought that came to mind how, you know, when you go places, you're trying to figure out, you know, if you're with your friends and you're trying to spend less, you tell them, not, you know, I'm cutting out sugar. So it has nothing to do financial, but I this happened to me. I don't know. This is probably five years ago. I had a client. I went to the nursing home. Um, it was a client I inherited, and I went with the family to the mur- nursing home in small town Iowa, and uh, I had to have lunch there. Have you ever had lunch in a nursing home?
1: My daughter serves
0: <laughs> in a small lunch. town. Yeah. So they brought out like the mystery meat, and I, yep. you know, had a bite the mashed potatoes that was okay and then they say would you like some pudding for dessert and i said nope i gave up sugar yeah it was my way out of the pudding i'm like (laughs) i can't eat the pudding oh when you you said that that's all i could think about no i gave up sugar hard pass on that pudding (laughs) oh but you know you mentioned the lottery winners jonas and i think especially last week when it hit a little over a billion dollars the powerball And everybody thinks, hey, if I won the lottery, it'd buy me all the happiness in the world. But in reality, do you think you can actually buy happiness? Can money buy happiness? Well, I think that what
1: the Beatles say, money can't buy you love, but uh, it can buy you a little bit of happiness. But uh, just working with uh, a couple of lottery winners, uh, one of them told me that... uh, if they would have won an extra zero at the end, things would have a lot been wor- things would have been a lot worse. Really? Yeah. Yeah. To uh, to win and have an extra zero. Won Why at did the they end.
0: think it would be worse? I'm just just curious. too
1: much chaos. Uh, just uh, you're you're actually you're taking yourself. You mentioned small town Iowa. You're taking your you're you're taking your lifestyle away from your friends and your family. And you you just have an aura about you that uh, there's no no more privacy. It's almost like uh, having your own YouTube channel 24 hours a day. You know people you know people are always curious about what you're gonna buy next and everything. Uh, but you know there are some studies done that, uh, and I think this is psychological too. And I this this was fun to see for the hardworking folks out there. And I think a lot of people in Iowa are very very hardworking. They do a very good, good job saving their money um when couples the psychology of couples hitting this threshold uh or, or even one wage earner hitting a threshold of 100,000 or if a couple ha- a household hits a threshold of 100,000 i think that's important for the psychology of uh enjoying your money a little bit because uh um i was always brought up that uh you know making six digits was a that was a fantastic, you know, income. And I think that that is, uh, you know, getting to that $100,000 threshold, a husband and wife, I think that that's uh, important. And there's a lot of studies that, uh, you know, um, if uh, households make more than $75,000 in income, they actually are a little bit happier than other households that are less than that, socioeconomic households that are uh, a lower uh, on the lower end, and uh, that's just kind of the psychology uh, of it. But uh, I, I think it can't. It, I think that uh, just uh, the your self worth of making maybe that hundred thousand as a couple um, makes you feel better about uh, money, and I think that there's psychology behind that.
0: I think it. Um, Doctor Peterson, he was out there talking about. He's a psychologist specializing in the money aspect. And he's the one that did the, one of the studies about, hey, if you make 75000 there's really not much more happiness that comes after that. That's probably clearly a low number now based upon what's happened with inflation in our economy. But I do think once you get to a certain threshold, like you don't have to worry about feeding your family. You don't have to worry about you know making ends meet. You're getting by. Does more money buy happiness? I don't think so. It buys more things. It buys more experiences. But the question is whether those things make you happy. And I'll go back to your Disney, your Disney analogy. You're able to afford the ten thousand dollars to get to Disney and get the tickets and your air airfare and everything. You think you're going to be happier, and then you go there. Were you really happier? Right. You might not be. Even though you had all the money to do what you wanted, it might not have been a great trip for you. Now, so, for our family, we had a great time. Right. We want to go back. But like you said, we saw lots of families that weren't happy.
1: So you're saying any amount of income, it's important to have a spending plan, no matter what?
0: Well, I I was watching. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time on YouTube, obviously. And there was a Dave Ramsey clip, family making 190000 their paycheck to paycheck. Are they happier? Probably not. They're still stressed out about money just because you have right. more doesn't mean you're more financially secure. In fact, some people that make more are less financially secure because they're carrying more debt, more payments, more risk. You know, it just, it's odd, people don't think that. People think you make 300,000, you're set. Right? Well, maybe, maybe not, depends on what you have and what you borrowed. If you're paying cash for everything, you're in a really great spot.
1: Yeah, but, and I think if you can get to a point, uh, because we're all gonna have to spend money, right? If you can get to a point, where you're okay with spending money, um, and you don't feel guilty about that, and you you don't dread spending money. Again, it, there has to be a balance somewhere, Roger. You know, we've, you and I have tried to work with hoarders over the years, people that, that just completely despise spending money, and uh, all of a sudden you you do a financial plan on them, and they have five million bucks saved up, and then their their kids are going to spend it in an inheritance, so. That's not a good relationship with money. Uh, Neither is, you know, hoping that the government's just going to pay you to sit on the couch and so you can drink Starbucks and play video games. That's not a good relationship with money. So just like with everything else, I think there's a balance uh, to the financial stuff. And uh, I think it was uh, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, partner, Charlie Munger, said, if money isn't emotional, what the heck is it? It's the number one emotion. I mean there's we had a former business partner that uh, his first week I was talking to him about uh, uh, where he used to work and this uh, this player or uh, being a financial advisor, he said that uh, well I made more money where I used to work full- time. I, I make less here. He was all charged up about it. And uh, you know, I had to like tell them that. Uh, well, you're you own your own business. It's not you know, it's all not all meat and gravy, you know. Right away, you don't you don't get the Sunday and the cherry and the the cake and the icing on the cake right away. You got to build it up a little bit. But my, I think money's super emotional for people.
0: Well, I I think it. Our discussion just in general goes to sh- goes to show that money's more emotional and psychological than people think. Um, most financial stuff is run by emotion. And that's how we make make, um, make decisions about money. One of the things that, that I was thinking about was this thing called anchoring bias. I don't know if you've ever heard of Absolutely, this. Absolutely, yeah. But this, and you probably do, because you read more books than anybody I know, especially on like the psychology of money and you know, influence and different things. But you know, if people don't know what this is, this is really just where humans unconsciously rely on the first number given and then determine whether that's good or not. in um, the first thing I'll think about is the 401k. People, a lot of people think, well, if I get my 401k match, that's all I need to do. Well, that's not really true. Because mo- some places the 401k match is 3%. So they have to put in six to get three. They're like, oh, that's great. I'm doing everything I need to do for, for retirement. Most people who anchor their decision making on that they're gonna set themselves up for failure because a nine percent contribution for most people is not gonna get you where you wanna go. So that's one of the unintentional anchors that can cause negative things to happen. The other type of anchor that, that you see out there, 25% off coupon. Well, oh yeah, it's on sale, for, it's $100, it's on sale for 75 bucks, it's a great deal. Well, not if everything just starts off 25% higher. Right. It's just the normal deal. (laughs) But people make decisions based upon what they first see. Um, What was the story you told me? Was it Robert Cialdani's book about the uh, two brothers that had the suit company?
1: Oh, yeah. Tell
0: that story. Because that actually is like a great analogy of what this anchoring idea is all about.
1: Yeah, the two tailors had a suit company. And, uh, uh, of course, people would come in and looking for the cheapest suit. And uh, um, they would uh, shop around suits. They'd size they they would size them up. This person that was looking for a suit, um, they'd size them up with the most expensive suit, and it'd look fantastic on them. And they'd say, uh, "Well, you can't afford that," uh, but they uh, they actually anchored you know that person in a in a Lexus, a new Lexus right away. And uh, you're you know the psychology of it. You can't get your mind off how good you looked in the first suit. So. They would uh, they would sell basically a hundred percent of the highest you know most expensive and they were also high quality too. So it was actually at the end of the day, even though it was a uh, kind of a um, an influ- influential way to do it, um, a lot of the customers uh, were re- repeat customers uh, for that.
0: You know what's uh, ironic about that though is because I like to have nice clothes. Most people see the most expensive suit as like a luxury item. What they don't understand is that luxury suit that you think you bought might last three or four times as long right. as the cheap one and in the long run, actually be less expensive.
1: Yep, yep.
0: And that's probably why they had repeat customers. But they're like, man, that great suit I bought, that lasts me five, six, seven years. The other one, 18 months and it's, it's all over. There's a reason. Sometimes things are more expensive, not all the time, but a lot of times you're getting what you pay for.
1: Yeah. You know, we talk about anchoring and uh, I think Oscar Wilde said that uh, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. You know, you have some people that are hung up with gas prices all the time that they, oh, I can't believe gas is four and a half bucks, you know, a gallon. Um, And then they'll, uh, then they'll go and buy a $6,000 vacuum cleaner like my uh, mother and father-in-law did. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a second, there's a disconnection here. Uh, don't you wanna call your, uh, your son-in-law before you buy like a $6,000 vacuum cleaner? Uh, because I know that you're very frugal and, and you're worried about gas prices. So I think that uh, these big ticket items, people uh, need to realize that you buy you buy things based on emotion. And you back it up with whatever rationale your brain can think of after you purchase something. So, again, back to the spending plan. A lot of people don't have $6,000 set aside for a vacuum cleaner in their spending plan. It just doesn't make a lot of sense if you have a spending plan. So, yeah, be careful because the retailers and even the financial institutions know all about this anchoring and how to, I would say, in some ways, kind of trick you into buying things.
0: So, Jonas, ultimately, I think the key to conquering this anchoring bias is just continually question your instincts. Right. You know, nobody thinks about what you, you just said something about bananas. Nobody thinks about that. N- nobody, no one thinks when they walk in a grocery store that they're getting tricked to buying the most expensive right. thing, but it's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Why do grocery stores. Constantly move stuff around. Bingo. Because you have to keep looking, so then, then you end up buying more. I'm going to give you a great example. We we got back from Kansas City last week, and we hadn't been home for a couple of weeks, and we had to get groceries. So I ordered groceries, and I'm talking ordering groceries. I didn't have anything in my refrigerator because we were gone for like three weeks, so anything perishable was gone. Order groceries, 210 bucks, which, and I didn't order. We don't order for a whole week. Is that doesn't work in our household. But I got two little girls, so groceries are expensive. We buy fruits and vegetables. My bill is usually 300 when I go to the store. Yep. What's the difference? I didn't buy. I actually tell you the difference. My wife wanted to make some veggie tacos, some vegetable tacos that we were trying to copy the recipe from a restaurant we found in Kansas City. So, yep, I had the list of what I needed. But I also bought the pickled red onion jar. I'm like, well... <laughs> man, the pickled banana peppers, those look good too. And then that extra salsa, <laughs> I need that and the hot sauce. And the next thing I know, I spent $90 to make veggie tacos. I'm like, I should just went out to dinner, get home. My wife's like, I don't even like pickled red onions. I'm like, no kidding. Neither do I, but they sure look good. <laughs> but that's exactly what happens when you go to the store. Cause they make you walk around and nobody is thinking about that. So I always tell my wife should try to order our groceries, because we spend a third less right. every single time. And none of that, we waste less food. You know, most people, yeah. if you're going to the grocery store multiple times a week, you're probably at some level have some level of waste that you wouldn't have your you were ordering your groceries because you're not getting the impulse buys. And the other thing, I don't know buy in the sugary treats when I'm ordering online. You know, when you right. go to the grocery store, you're going to grab the Oreos or you're going to grab whatever whatever's there because – Right. They know how to get you to buy it. Yep. They know you're going to go get milk. So, what's by the milk? The package of cookies. I mean, right <laughs> by the milk aisle at Hy-Vee is a whole stand of Oreos. Well, how are you going to not get a package of Oreos, especially if you have your kids with you? Dad, can we get Oreos? Good luck saying no. You're going know, to melt down in the grocery store
1: yeah I think you mentioned that you you have to you have to have a, a gut feeling uh, that uh, you're you're being maybe duped a little bit, and you're exactly right, Roger. The old saying you never never go to the grocery store hungry. I always tell the clerk. You come in for one thing and look what happens. I'm guilty of it too. It's a guilty, uh, it's a guilty pleasure, but it's definitely not a spending plan.
0: So does the same thing work? You never go to the bar thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: that's a good one. I'm gonna write that down right here. So, uh, uh, but yeah, just uh, kind of be careful about anchoring because it's out there and it happens all the time, and everybody has to spend money.
0: We, and in Jonas, you know, the theme of today's episode is really about people's relationship with money. Um, And, you know, I was doing some research for this show and I came across a statistic that kind of blew my mind is from the Harris poll. Six out of 10 people say they would like to be billionaires one day. What I found more interesting, though, is that 44 percent of the respondents said they have the available tools to become billionaires. Wow. There's only 770 billionaires (laughs) in the whole world. How can 44 percent of the people Believe I believe they have the tools to become a billionaire because if you look at the billionaires, Jonas, you start to think about people who just changed the entire fabric of the world. Yep. And I'll name them Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, Michael Dell, Bill Gates. These are billionaires. What they did, they came up with a very unique idea. They were able to execute it, and they had a little bit of luck along the way.
1: Yeah, and they they disrupt they disrupted entire industries. Right? That was actually the
0: word I was. They were disruptors. Yep. yep. But that when I was researching this, it also led me to this blog blog post from a best selling author. Where he listed thirty one things that he's learned about money. And it reminds me about a couple weeks ago you weren't on the show, but I was um, I was watching a gentleman on on YouTube. His name's Ryan Sirhan. He's from uh the million dollar listing new york show and ryan sorhan deals with only high value properties in new york city so there's 770 billionaires in the united states 91 of the billionaires in the world are in ryan sorhan's phone and he was using some of the ideas and takeaways he got from billionaires and you know what he he kind of broke it down to the one common common commonality was between them They simplify things. He was talking about going out to dinner with him, Jonas, and he went out to dinner with multiple, but the first time he went out to dinner with one, the waitress handed him the menu. He handed the menu back and said, you pick, it's all good. And the reason was he didn't want to waste time ordering food and he knew everything was good. And so Ryan Surian was a little apprehensive about it. He's like, oh, okay, but then he realized, like, all of dinner was relaxing because they didn't have to worry about what they were going to eat and they didn't have to make a decision. Um, but there's some lessons we've learned about money, and I'll kind of let you open this up. What do you think some of the best lessons you've actually learned about money are in your almost 30 years doing this, Jonas?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I really like this, uh, um, this article that he did, uh, uh, Pick the Low-Hanging uh, Fruit you know, don't have, a you know, don't have too much in a checking account, um, at any time, have an emergency fund, maybe six to 10 months. Um, and I call that a first spare tire. Your second spare tire, you have to invest, um, or at least put into a CD, a laddered CD. Um, it, he goes, uh, uh, basically that, uh, You know, he says a a lot of good things, but you know, I think that uh, it's just being savvy and having um, some uh, um, expectations that are doable. And I, what I really like about it is, uh, you just gotta somehow get started in your twenties on this stuff. I mean, how many times, Roger, have you seen somebody in their sixties come in and uh, they're they've done a good job saving money, but they had they have this debt that is just bugging them. And you go over the interest rate, and the interest rate is a good interest rate, but the debt is just bugging them, and it's keeping them from—you said, you know—enjoying their lunch. It's almost keeping them from enjoying their lives because that's all you can think about. But uh, the sooner you get started, you know, I think is the the most important thing. What was your uh, favorite part of this uh, advice that he had?
0: So this, I love this one right here, and he said, "I've never met a person." successful person who's ever reached their number. And, and I I use this in my practical life. I'm sure this has happened to you, but when you're 25, you'll say, well, when I hit this number, I'll be good. Well, then you get more successful and the number goes up and the number goes up and it keeps going up and really successful people actually never hit the number because they keep moving the goalpost on themselves to push them. Right. If, if you start out saying, hey, I want to have a net worth like I had personal goals. So if your your goal is, hey, at 40, I want a net worth of at least a million dollars and you hit it. What are you going to do to stop? No, you move the goalpost. Now it's 10. So people who are really successful, they never hit their number because if they hit it, it would mean. The challenge is over, like successful people like the challenge. Right. We talk about our job. This is our job's the job of hope. There's jobs that have no hope. Yep. Like this is a job for people that want to keep moving the goalpost. Um, so that's my favorite one that, you know, most people that are highly motivated highly successful actually never hit their number.
1: Yeah. I talked about this in my, my second book, uh, um, uh, upside down retirement. You don't need a million bucks to retire that, uh, well, you're t- What you're talking about is somebody that's in the driver's seat on their finances, and they're in their driver's seat of their uh, career, and uh, we we have our favorite neighbors that are our best friends, and they're you know they're always asking me for financial advice. I'm helping them the best I can with their four hundred one k's, but they're always complaining about money. But one of the things that they always do is they always get carry out. And I did a little I did a little uh, sample last night because I knew uh, I wanted something for the podcast today. I went to Hy-Vee, I got an $8 steak, and uh, I chopped that up. That fed the whole family because I made steak salads uh, for the for the whole family. Um, and uh, so all in, we, we had the rest of the ingredients, like you said, in our fridge. You know, we already had the rest of the ingredients. All in, I had an $8 meal. Compare that to a story where you go out and you get a carryout, you get chicken fingers, you throw a couple of kids in the mix. What's carry out now?
0: If you have a couple of kids, Chick Fil A's fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, we stopped there on the way home the other day. I'm like, how did I just spend fifty dollars yeah. for lunch at Chick Fil A, and all I got just grilled right. chicken nuggets, and that's it. Just the entree, not a meal. You're right. It's unbelievable, but you, that's a good point. Like, oh, well, it, I'm, I'm
1: sorry. I had five dollar on sale, five dollar boneless <laughs> buffalo chicken wings. That, that so. I uh, misspoke there. You're you're looking at about all in fourteen bucks to feed a family. So Jonas,
0: here's what I'm trying to figure out how you got out of the grocery store with an eight dollar steak and boneless chicken wings, and that's it. I don't know. <laughs> that's how almost I did impossible. It I mean, yeah. like, you didn't have to buy dipping sauce right. or anything to go with
1: it. Um, well, you used the steak's juice for gravy. That's the that's a little uh, cooking uh, tip for the, the show.
0: Well, Jonas, I, I appreciate you having having you on a show again. We always seem to have a good show. It's always fun. Um, with that said, uh, if you're a listener out there, I want you to subscribe, like our channel. If you have a favorite piece of financial advice that you've learned or you want to share with us, you can go to com, submit that. We'll, we'll uh, put it up on the air. And uh, until next, I want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.